here will be all ready. Okay, for our first message today, it'll be brought to us by Mr. Art Williams, and it's entitled Stop, Look, Listen, Vision. Ever have one of those days when you're like always like two minutes behind where you should be? <clears throat> Maybe five days behind where I should be. If you go ri riding around out in the country, <clears throat> you may run across some railroad grade crossings where the railroad tracks cross the highway. And out in the rural areas, lots of times there are no flashing lights. There are no gates that come down and prevent you from driving onto the tracks. And if you're out there and it's a dark, moonless night, and it happens to be raining, and you're cruising along at maybe 35, 40 miles an hour, and you come up to this grade crossing, <clears throat> and you don't really know it's there yet, because your eyes haven't, your headlights haven't got onto the white cross signs, <clears throat> and there is a train there, and he happens to be hauling flat cars. Not the big box cars, but the flat cars. I found out without an accident just how tricky that could be. That you cannot see that flat car on a moonless night at a distance. And you don't know it's there until you see this shadow. You see a shadow kind of moving out there, and you're not sure exactly what it is. And so you keep driving, and it's a while before you put your hands over your hands, your feet over on the brake. Maybe it'd be worthwhile to put your hands down on the brake, you know, duck for cover. But it was a frightening experience because I didn't realize that it was a train. And I could have very easily, uh, if I'd been at all drowsy and not attentive, I could have missed that shadowy thing moving in front of me. And I could have ran into it. But you see, when you learn to drive, they tell you, when you come to a railroad grade crossing, stop, look, and listen. Well, if you don't see the grade crossing there, you don't stop and look and listen. You know, all you got to do is to rely on vision. You've got to see it. And I thought that worked into faith. Because faith comes by listening. And there are many cinnamons and cinnamons. I tell you, I have grown good today. Cinnamons. Synonyms and elements that comprise faith that have to do with vision. <clears throat> vision entails, faith entails hope. It entails expectation. It entails anticipation. Faith, when used as a catalyst, is a motivating factor in people. It's used in business. It's used in various places through society. It's planning for the future. And it's so important in the Bible, in Proverbs, it says where there is no vision, the people perish. It's a very important aspect of, in some, in some, uh, versions of the Bible, it says prophetic vision, and we're going to look a little bit at that, because it's, it, whether it's prophetic or not, 
uh, vision, looking to the future, having hopes, dreams, expectations, and anticipations for the future. And believing that some of those things can happen is, is imperative for a, a positive outlook and to be successful. If man truly believed he could never fly, he never would have tried to build an airplane. You know, you look in the old films and you see a guy, he's, he's, he's got a contraption there and his wings and he's going like this, trying, trying to fly like a bird. And then another guy hooks, he hooks the wings up to an engine and, he, and the wings are going like this on an engine. So if you, if, if you believe you can never do it, then you don't even try. I used to, years ago, buy a magazine that had nothing but home plans in it. I mean, mansion-type home plans. Because I thought, in my mind, I didn't think I'd ever really build it, but in my mind, I wanted to design the perfect house. Of course, there is no such thing, really, as a perfect house. It's just a matter of what your priorities and desires are. I mean, you might want to think in one time uh, is, is having a house on a mountain. When I came off the north rim of the Grand Canyon and coming down that road, and it was late in the afternoon, I was in the dark shadows of the pine trees all around me. But the, the sun was peeking over the mountain crest and hitting off the wall of the valley far below. And it was just a beautiful sight, all the colors, the oranges and the browns and the yellows, bouncing off of that and, and meshing in with the with the green pine trees. It would, I actually stopped the car coming down the hill and just stopped there and just took it in for a few minutes. But then again, you might not want to have your house there. You might want to have an oceanfront property, you know? So it all depends. And then I got thinking, well, you know, maybe one day I'll have my own planet, my own solar system. You know something? I'll have my house by the, the oceanfront. I'll have my house over on the mountain, and maybe I'll have a few more besides. Future planning is important. Vision is important. And vision, we need to improve our vision sometimes. Sometimes we do that with binoculars. Of course, if you're too close to a person and you look at them with binoculars, you see things you don't want to see. And then the other side of it is a microscope. So you can look at things really, really small that are up close. And likewise, planning for the future, goals and hopes and desires, can be in the same way. We can have goals and desires that are, we look at under a microscope or that we look through um, binoculars or telescopes. It's a fundamental aspect of Christianity. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. And some of the comments that it makes in Hebrews 11, <clears throat> without faith it's impossible to please him, that we have to believe that he is, and that he rewards those that seek him. So the, in those rewards are, or should be, part of our goals. If we fulfill our goals to please him, and he will reward us in his way. It's required to inherit the promises. And it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. 
By faith, Abraham <clears throat> obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's faith, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him for the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's described in the end chapters of Revelation. That's the home he's looking for. And it continues in Hebrews 13, And they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So they had the vision. They had the plan. They had the goal. They understood what was offered, and they understood how to get there. Jesus said, and it's recorded in Mark 1.15. Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he followed that up in chapter 9 verse 23. All things are possible to those who believe. I'm going to turn to that. Mark 9.23. Because in this example, Jesus is about to heal a young man, and his father was pleading desperately for it. In verse, oh, let's start in 17. In one of the multitude, answered and said, Master, I have brought unto you my son who has a dumb spirit, and wherever he takes him, he tears him and foams and gashes him with his teeth and pines away. And I have spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus gets a bit rough with him. He says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I endure you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him, and he saw him straight away, and the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, how long ago has it, has it, is it since this came unto him? And he said, from a child. And often it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. <clears throat> but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Well, Jesus said before that, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help you, my unbelief. Help you, my unbelief. It's something I think every Christian deals with, the feeling of unbelief inadequate belief. And it wasn't just unique to this man, it was also expressed by the, the apostles, the disciples. They also experienced the same insufficiency. Later, 
in verse 28, the disciples came to Jesus and asked privately, why could we not cast him out? And Jesus says, this kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, um, there's a note, I think, on that part on fasting. Some, uh, some versions leave out the fasting and say that it's not in some of the original uh, manuscripts. But nonetheless, it was there. And if we continue over in Luke 17, 5, we see the apostles said to Jesus, increase our faith. In Luke 17, 5. Increase our faith. We're going to come back and look at that in a little bit. But first I've got another question for you. And that is, what can rattle your faith? If you feel like my faith is inadequate, or I need help with my faith, what would happen if you're at one of those moments that would rattle you and encourage unbelief? Of course, there are many things that can. There are incidents with your family, your friends, your husband, your wife, your children, your church, your job, all kinds of, of issues that can rattle faith. And God has a purpose why he does answer, and sometimes he doesn't answer. I know that one of those answers is because he wants to, find, he wants to see what you're going to do. Sometimes he expects us to handle it when we don't think we should handle it. You should handle it, not me. I want to look at something back in the Old Testament. It, it's recurring. It's not a, a single event. And it's actually a description. It's in Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. And it's actually a description of the kingdom of God. And when God establishes his kingdom here on earth. Ezekiel 36. I have a lot of scriptures listed on this, so I'm going to have to sort my way through it as we go along. <clears throat> he's talking to the house of Israel here, or he's, he's actually talking to Judah and Jerusalem, but he says, Son of man, verse 17, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and their own doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a defiled woman. Therefore I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that had shed upon the land and for their idols by which they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed among the countries according to their way and according to their doings I judged them. And they entered into the nations to which they went. They profaned my holy name when they said to them, These are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of, his hand, out of the land. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, I do not this for your sakes. That is preemptive to Ezekiel's statement about the establishment of the kingdom of God, which is interesting. 
He talks about, in verse 24, I will take you from among the nations and gather you and put you into your own land. But he doesn't remember what he just said. I don't do it for your sakes. I do it from my holy name. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, it says in verse 26. And as we go on down through, through all of this, and he says in verse 31, Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your own doings that were not good, and you shall loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquity and for your abomination. Not for your sakes do I do this, says the Lord. He repeats it. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. And the part that I really want to get to is down in verse 37. Let's jump to 35, though. And they, and they shall say, this land was desolate. It has become like the Garden of Eden. That's how we know this is a description of the future. This is not the return of the Jews from Babylon. Jews will never became like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolated and the ruined cities are become fortified and inhabited. And the nations that are left round about, you shall know that I, the Lord, built the, built the ruined places and the plant from which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will do it. Notice how, time, how many times he says, I will, I will, I will. They aren't doing it. He is doing it. In verse 37, this is what he says. Thus says the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of them by the house of Israel to do it unto them. In the ESV, it says, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. You understand what he's implying here? He's implying, I'm not talking to you. I'm not hearing you. You call me, I'm dispensing the call. I'm, I'm, I'm canceling it. I'm not answering it. That's what he says at some point. We're going to find out why he does that. He's already indicted them for their iniquities. And here he says, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. And this is during the millennium when he's rebuilding and refortifying the cities. And he comes out and says, I will now let them inquire of me. So by implication, he wasn't letting them inquire of him prior to this. And there's a specific reason why. There's a specific reason, right? And it was the, the precursor to it is back in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7. And we'll go to verse... Uh, oh, let's... Start in verse 13. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you... You did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, and I shall cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for these people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. She says, don't bother. Did you, catch, did you catch as to why? Did you catch that? He's not going to listen to them 
to their prayers or anybody that intercedes for them because, back in verse 13, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called, you did not answer. So guess what? When you call me, I'm not going to answer. When you dial my cell phone number, I'll dismiss it. You come to my door and knock, I look through the peak hole, I don't open. You call my landline, I look on caller ID. It's, oh, it's you, I'm not talking to you. Who does the calling today? Who does the sowing of the seed? The churches. We look over at church attendance in the last decade, the last half century, and we can see how church attendance is dwindling. Fewer and fewer people are listening. Fewer and fewer people are responding to the call. And at some point in the future, he's not going to answer. Amos 8.11 gets a little more serious about it. And he says in there, and this appears also to be referencing end time. Now, I'll tell you why in a minute. Let's, let's read Amos 8.11 first. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There will be no words of the Lord. And if we go back to verse 9, we'll see where he talks about the sun being blackened. That seems to relate back to Revelation 6.12, the timing of the sixth seal. So that's how bad it could get. And the question that I started out with, would this rattle your faith? Well, Paul gives us encouragement in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Vision, anticipation, hope expectation. And he continues, I'm going to back up to verse 6 and start, and he says this, and, and if you look at Paul's life and everything that he went through and suffered, and for him to say, so we are always of good courage. Wow, I get depressed. My car has a, breaks down and has a, a problem, you know? It's like, ah, how can I be of good courage? One car has a flat tire, the other car has a blown radiator. And I called my friend to take me out to the place to get parts. And he's in Alaska, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I guess I'll walk to the parts store and carry myself back some parts, you know. It, it, always of good courage. And you look at what Jeremiah went through. And some of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, he's out in the middle of nowhere saying, they're out to kill me too, Lord. And the Lord says, what are you doing out here? You're supposed to be back there where the people are. They're trying to kill me. They're trying to, no, I don't care. Don't you believe I can keep you away from that? Don't you believe I can protect you? Faith, vision, anticipation, expectations. But Paul goes on. We know that while we are at home in the body, that's our physical life, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are a good courage and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
Wow. A lot to do in that with all of life's problems, all of life's issues. <clears throat> but we do have some recommendations for increasing faith. In Mark 9, and I have down here 14 through 29, I'm not going to read all of that. That was the same story that we already went through. And I'm going to get down to the bottom line here where Jesus said to the disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So one of the keys for spiritual strength is prayer. Very simple thing. But it's also how you use it. It's how we use prayer. You know, if you're going to pray by the clock, somebody says you should pray 30 minutes a day, three times. That's what David did. No. We should pray because we want to. It's a matter of the heart, the condition of the heart. We should pray because we know what he's doing for us. We know that he's always... I heard a story. I don't know if I believe it or not. It was, this guy was relating a story when he was a teenager. And he was in class, and he would go around the school, and he was talking about Jesus. And kind of, he's 16 years old or something. And one day, <clears throat> he's there at his locker at the end of school day, and this kid comes up behind him and says, you better shut up about talking about Jesus. And as the kid turns around, because he doesn't recognize the voice, know who it is, turns around, kid pulls out a switchblade. You stop talking about Jesus. Now, the, this 16-year-old kid is now a 30-year-old minister, so take this with a grain of salt for what it's worth. But he's, he said he didn't know what to do. Kid's bigger than him. How, how do you deal with that situation? <clears throat> he said he prayed. And, and what it came into his mind was, take the version of the New Testament that you have in your locker and throw it on the floor. He turned back to his locker, threw it on the floor, and it comes to his mind, tell him to step over that line. So he did. He step over that New Testament. And what he sees in the guy's face is, So he turns around and looks. There's a vision of an angel standing above him. I don't know. Believe it or not. The guy turned around and walked away and didn't say a thing. Nobody else, uh, none of the other kids that were around there that apparently saw what happened. They just saw this guy turn around and walk away. So your angel is always with you. No matter what is before us, we should be of good courage. And we walk by faith, we will, uh, yeah, we, we will be of good courage. Not as easy to do as it is to say. But it is one step at a time. Jesus says if we had the faith of a mustard seed, we could move mountains. We can try that. You know, we can try walking on water. I can try, I'm going to levitate myself. God, levitate me up to the ceiling. I'm not there yet, you know. But if we go through Luke 17, 5 through 10, we'll find out at the bottom of that, last line, verse 10, 
He says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, this is an attitude that we should have, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Another secret in increasing faith is to go above and beyond the call of duty. And it has to do with an attitude. It has to do with your heart. You know, if you, if you bring out a, a list, a to-do list, and say, okay, this is the Sabbath, it starts at sundown, I'm going to do this, do that, do the other thing. All right, got that done. Now, I guess it's a good time to go to bed. Oh, it's morning already. Yeah, time to go to church. Got to go to church. Heart, enthusiasm, love. Where there is no vision, the people perish. In Acts 1, <clears throat> Jesus told the disciples, the apostles, to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit where they would be baptized. He was forward-looking. The book of Revelation wasn't written for decades later. The book of Revelation gives a further insight into the future, gives further hope, vision, expectations, anticipations, gives an outline of the development of how the kingdom of God will come. What's the vision for your family, for your children, for the Tulsa Church of God? Who will be the future leaders? Which of the children among us right now, 50 years from now, will have the gifts listed in the Bible? Which one may be an evangelist, a healer? Which ones will be the pastor, the deacons? One of the biggest problems that children have is making the transition from the youth and teen classes to the main congregation. And the reason is because they were in this youth class, and the smaller your church is, the more difficult this transition is. If you have one person that is 18, and they graduate out of the youth class or the teen class, and they come into the main congregation, Guess what they did? They left all their friends back there in the other classroom. Now they're, quote, an adult in a strange foreign environment. That transition is difficult even for the large churches, and it's more difficult for smaller churches. I was listening to guys speaking about that here on the radio this past week. And he was from a larger church, and uh, just dealing with that, uh, and they have a lot more capacity to, to deal with that crossover, that crossroads that the youth face. But anticipation, hope, vision can call, all come into play to help in those areas. Also, it's through vision, hope, anticipation that the church avoids the criticism of the seven churches in Revelation. The church avoids becoming stale, lazy, dull, unfruitful, shriveled up, and dead. You can drive around the country and you can see the old time white churches with the steeple on it and it's all boarded up. <clears throat> God doesn't lead people 
to a stale, dry, dull, dying church. He will lead them to a spiritually vibrant, spiritually enthusiastic, spiritually mature church that is focused on loving him in his way. You know, a woman can change her husband, can win her over by her conduct, and a child taught in the way when he's young will not depart from it. We're not a community church, we're a doctrinal church. The Methodist church that I attended briefly when I was a child was a community church. Most of the people that went there, they weren't big on doctrines or anything. We went there because we didn't have any of our church of our beliefs in our area, so it's better to have some Christian teaching than none at all. And that was the definition of that community church. There's more to it than that. I was worried about not having enough material. Here I've got my 30 minutes up already and my red light's on. Remember this. Vision. Faith. Expectations. Anticipation. And hope. Are stimulants for the future. 